The following is a recorded sermon delivered by Brother John Boyd on September 6, 2020, Fort Smith Primitive Baptist Church, 2201 South Houston Street, Fort Smith, Arkansas. I guess I ought to apologize to all of you that came and thought you, Brother Steve would be here. Uh, I thank Fort Smith Bunch for putting up with me. Uh, I know there's some more people down the road a little ways that are really thankful that you're putting up with me because Brother Steve is down there. It seems like it's been, I don't know how long, it's been months since he's been at Little Flop. We, our Saturday night services, we uh, discontinued them for the time being and that was his one opportunity really to come down there. And so we've, we've missed greatly getting to hear him. And you know, this virus thing, uh, it has hurt the churches in probably a number of different ways. But I was thinking as we, you sang that last song, Brethren, we have met to worship. And the key word in there is that we have met to worship. That is how I believe the worship service is designed to take place. That's the way the Lord designed it to take place. He would go out on a hillside and sit down and His disciples would gather around Him and He would teach and preach to them. I mean, it was simple, it was basic, too simple and too basic for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They wanted to see something big take place. They wanted to see something really going on. And just to sit down in a simple matter, as he did, and teach, uh, they, they just couldn't take it. But we, the, the service, you know, it is meant for us to come together and assemble together. And with social distancing and all those things, and canceling meetings, and, uh, oh, well, I'm thinking about it, I got a text message on my phone that said the Cane uh, Creek Association had been canceled. But all those things that we went through this, these last few months, uh, it's been a detriment to the church. There's, 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 there's no doubt about it in many ways. Uh, you know, there's no other experience in the world like it to come together and have an elder that the Lord has blessed him with the presence of His Spirit. And he's preaching and His Spirit is testifying to your spirit and touching your heart. Uh, that just you can't do that any other way. And to have the fellowship and shake each other's hand and hug each other's neck and and be together. There's there's just no there's nothing else that can take its place. But we do the best we can. And there's it there's so many different 
is of opinion among old Baptists about what ought to be done. You know, I'm just talking about a little flock now. I had one brother told me that if we're going to quit coming every time there's a little virus comes along, we might as well just disband. I had another brother that just as firmly believes that the church doors ought to be locked, that nobody should meet. Uh, that's quite a difference of opinion there between the two. If you go by to visit this one brother, he'll ring his doorbell and he'll peek out the window and if you step back, he'll come out. And then he's got two chairs outside about 10 foot apart or more that he, you can sit and, and talk to him like that. That's his opinion. You got a, a dear sister that she is frightened. She's scared to death of it. So it, it's been a, a real drag on the churches. Uh, wife's hairdresser that I take her to once a week. Uh, if I don't, I have to try to wash her hair, and that's that's a real problem. But uh, she, I suppose, goes down to Charleston to First Baptist or something of that nature. She says they'll never come back. Never come back like they was. That they've been away. They found out they can do other things. And they they won't be back. That's her opinion. I don't I don't think that would apply to old Baptists necessarily. Uh, but that's the world that we live in. We do the best that we can. Uh, the last two times that I've been here, uh, Brother Steve has preached out of the book of Malachi. Preached beautiful, beautiful sermons. And that's, just, that's not just my opinion. I mean, there was people that, that weren't even here. They called me uh, during the week and said, hey, I heard you had a good meeting at Fort Smith. And we sure did. But he's preached out of that, that little book of Malachi. I had no idea that an elder could get two sermons out of that little short book. Uh, but he did. Wonderful sermons. So I'd like to turn back a few pages this morning and, and look at the little uh, one of the other so-called minor prophets uh, Zechariah right next to Malachi and in particular the ninth chapter of Zechariah uh, there's some differences Malachi seemed to ride into prophesy and to speak to the people at a time after the, the temple had been built. You remember Brother Steve 
talking about your building down here and the old uh, used Kirby vacuum cleaner that was in it that was somebody had donated that was something less than uh, being new. Well, Malachi speaks in the book of Malachi about those that was coming, they was coming to the temple with their offerings. And they was bringing uh, the halt and the maim and the blind and the defective to, to their offerings. They was bringing uh, second or even, I suppose, third or fourth best. They wasn't bringing the best. And so he, he writes to them in, in, in that nature concerning their offerings at the temple. But Zechariah and Haggai, for that matter, they came out of uh, what started out as Babylonian captivity. And the Persians come and uh, took care of the Babylonians. And uh, a Persian a king by the name of Cyrus had sent Zerubbabel, I can't even say it this morning, uh, and about 40 some odd thousand had allowed them to come back to rebuild their temple which Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed and carried off all the uh, gold vessels and anything of any value. Their, their temple had been completely demolished. Well, this Persian king was stirred in his heart to let them come back and rebuild their temple. And so, Zechariah and Haggai, they're, that, that's their time period. They, they come back. And they are trying to encourage the people to rebuild their temple. And it's, you know, we think we have troubles. Uh, we have disagreements. Uh, we, some of our elders are afraid of the heavy hand of government. But they these people had some of the very, you know, human nature being what it is, they had some of the very same troubles. They, they come back, and in the second year that they was, had been released from captivity, they started to rebuild their temple. They laid the foundation, is what, what they did. And then they had the priests come out and they played, played their, blew their trumpets, and, symbols and they sang and celebrated uh, almost as if the temple had been rebuilt and all they had was a foundation you had one group of people that was shouting for joy at the prospects of having a temple and a place that they could come once again and worship but you had another group of people that was shouting and it was in sorrow. It was tears of sorrow and disappointment. And it says that if you read that, uh, incidentally, Ezra, about the third chapter, you could read some of their experiences. It said that you could not discern between the two. The, sh the shouting for joy and the shouting in sorrow as some of them was. The older ones could see the foundation and they could un see that that temple that was going to be rebuilt was it was going to be nothing like the original temple it wasn't going to be 
nearly as big. And you had another group that was just happy to have anything. And so you had quite, quite a difference of opinion there. And then they had all kinds of troubles. The Samaritans gave them constant trouble, wrote letters, uh, tried to get them get it stopped. The governor tried to write letters and get them to pay tribute or taxes. They had all kinds of trouble and disagreement. And so at that point, they just quit. They just quit for about probably around 18 years, 15 years. Uh, they didn't do anything. And then that's where uh, Zerubbabel uh, and Zechariah, Zechariah comes in. He writes to them in this ninth chapter to try to encourage them to continue and build that temple. Now, I'll I, I, I confess that probably Zechariah is one of my favorite prophets. Uh, especially that ninth chapter. There's some prophetic uh, prophecy in that ninth chapter that really changed the whole course of the world. And he describes something that's going to take place and it did about 560. 60 years later or so. But the, in that ninth chapter, the first eight verses, the commentators say that that was a prophecy concerning Alexander the Great. And those first eight verses, if you look at them and you read them, I think there's about ten different peoples in there. And it's a dark, dark picture of judgment that's coming on those people of death, of uh, war, of judgment, of servitude and slavery. It, it's a, and it were the things concerning Alexander are true or not. Uh, it pretty much happened like that. Alexander did. Uh, 20 years old, uh, put together a relatively small army. They went some 1,200 miles, conquered almost all of the known world. And in particular, those, those peoples and those cities that are mentioned in the first eight verses of Zechariah in the ninth chapter, you find that they was indeed destroyed. Uh, one city in particular, the city of Tyrus. Uh, you read in the third verse, Tyrus did build herself a stronghold. She piled up silver as dust and gold as the mire of the street. That was one of the it was a rich, wealthy people uh, that they had a stronghold. They had a, a fort built on an island out in the water. Uh, it was considered to be secure, uh, no way. Uh, the Babylonians had tried and they was, had failed at, at uh, defeating them. But Alexander came along and in about seven months that stronghold that those people had built for themselves with all the wealth and the riches and everything that this world can afford 
that stronghold lay in ruins. It was burning. He put most of the male males to death and he carried the women children into servitude and bondage. But we come from that that those first eight verses and come to uh, a complete turn, a 90 degree turn I'll say. We find this language. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. That is a promise I know that was given, or an admonition that was given to people uh, about 2,700 years ago or so. But I believe it's one that we can claim today. I believe we do have something to shout about. I believe we have something to rejoice about. You know, that was given to the nation of Israel. Uh, but there's a spiritual nation. You know, he's not a Jew that is, is uh, one outwardly, but he's Jew that is one inwardly in the circumcision of the heart. And I believe God's people, they have, they're the only people in the world that have something to truly rejoice and shout about as they go through this life. Now he gives in this prophecy, he gives about three reasons at least that you have something to shout about. He says, Your king cometh to unto ye. He said, You've got a king coming. Now it wasn't the kind of king that Israel was looking for. They was looking for one to lead them in battle. He said, Your king cometh unto you. You've got a king today, in this day. Spiritual Israel. You have a king that comes to you. He's not a king that is untouchable. He's not a king that you have to gain an audience with. He's a king that comes to you. He comes in times of trouble and trial and tribulation such as what we're going through today. He comes in times when you are laying asleep of a night and whatever your trouble and this old world just about has you beat down. You've got a king that comes to you. He says of this king, another thing that we have to rejoice about and shout about. He says this king is just. Just. Now, I realize there's different ways you can look at that. He's a king that justified. Certainly if we ever stand justified. Justified, it will be through him. Uh, he's a righteous king. But I like to think of him uh, as being just. His judgments are just. They're just. Uh, you know, I think in the 18th chapter of Luke, about the first part of that chapter, you read about a a judge 
that feared not God, neither did he regard man. And those two things go together when you think about it. You take a judge that has no fear of God or no love of God in his heart, then you can just about depend on that he has no regard for man. But we've got a king that, that came. And we're, we're looking back some 2,000 years at it. But we, it's still in effect today. He's a just king. He's just. His judgments are right. They're correct. They're fair. They're honest. Can you imagine in this country we live in, we live in today, if all of the judges feared God, loved God, what kind of world or what kind of country would we have? What kind of laws would be passed? I think they'd be probably quite different than what we have much of the time. He says, <laughs> Your king cometh to unto you. He's just and having salvation. Now this is in case I didn't I don't know if they even told you scriptures. Ninth chapter, ninth verse, Zechariah says, having salvation. He is salvation. There is none other. Whatever kind of salvation you want to talk about, He's it. If you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, it's because that He has given you the desire and the love and the ability deep within the recesses of your heart and your being, that you can do that. You wouldn't do it otherwise. He is the sole proprietor of salvation. Whatever kind you want to talk about. I think of old Jacob over in the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis. He'd come down to the end of his way. He was on his deathbed, so to speak. He gathered his sons about him. And uh, we find this, this expression. He said, Oh Lord, I have waited for thine, for thine salvation. We know that David spoke about restoring to him the joy of thy salvation. You know, salvation is the work of God. And it is the sole work of God. And that, for that reason, we have something to rejoice about. We have something to shout about. He said, going on, continuing with that verse, he said that he's lowly, riding on an ass, on the coat, the foal of an ass. That little prophecy right there, uh, shout, O daughters of Zion. Rejoice, O daughters of Jerusalem. I'm saying daughters, it's not daughters, it's daughter. I'm making it plural and it's not. He said, Your king cometh to you, just and having salvation, lowly riding on an ass, on the coat, the foal of an ass. 
That is my kind of prophecy. That is something I can understand. It's exact. It's sure. It's certain. It's clear. It's undeniable. It happened. I mean, there's uh, all four Gospels record that event. Uh, the book of Matthew, I think, 21st chapter. If you want to get the most details, probably you can turn to that. But some of the others, I think Matthew uh, adds the fact that it was a colt that had never been set on by man, any man. So that is my kind of prophecy. That's something that I can understand. So much of this that's called prophecy that's out in the world, it's pretty much over my head. Uh, anybody can understand that. Anybody. I said I was going to talk out of Zechariah. Let me just two scriptures. I'm going to read in a minute. That's the eleventh verse and the twelfth verse. I have a, a a bad habit. If I see a church sign out on the side of the road anywhere, I always read it. I don't mean I read uh, what the name of their pastor is or when they have services. But they usually have some kind of little cute saying down at the bottom of the sign. Some, something, uh, you know, fear and faith, that's a good subject, seems like. I mean, they uh, put out there that, you know, fear, or faith casteth out fear, and uh, fear and faith cannot live in the same house. I've seen that. All kinds of variations on that. But I, I seen one other day. I was driving down 22 Highway and I wasn't sure that I seen it right the first time. I'm going to come back. I looked again. This is what they had on their sign. It said, Don't hope. Now, hope was in big letters, had parentheses around it. It said, Don't hope. Decide. Decide. Don't hope. I mean, it was like it was a four-letter dirty word that you see on the side of a box car or somewhere. Don't hope. Decide. I started to think about some of the Scriptures and I didn't have that many to think about. Uh, that, that word was in. I thought about Titus, I believe, 1 and 2. It says, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. In hope of eternal life. In hope. And then, over in Colossians, uh, first chapter, and I believe it's about the, probably the 27th verse or somewhere in there, and I can't can't quote all of it. I couldn't, I couldn't that, that day. It says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen. I thought about another expression. It's one that I'd like to look at just briefly this morning. Uh, in this ninth chapter of Zechariah, I believe God's people are described as prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope. I was talking to Brother Joe Green not too long ago. I went by to visit with him. and He was talking about retirement. He said it's the hardest job he ever had. It's about the same way for me. I mean, you look forward to it. All your working life, and then you you get you finally get it, and it may not be all that you expected. It can be hard. But Brother Joe said, he said the thing that keeps me going is that I think there's something better that's coming. And if I've ever had any kind of experience at all with the Lord, it's pretty much been my experience. Brother Joe has a hope. And sometimes that hope may grow weak or dim. Uh, but yet it's there. He really didn't do anything to get it. And he couldn't get rid of it if he wanted to. So he's got it. Yet it grows weak. And, uh, there's a corruption of the mind and heart and a coldness that sets in and the influence of this old world that we live in starts to bear down upon us. And we, we look back and we realize that we have lost something. We've lost a freedom that one time that we had when that hope was strong. We're bound. We're restricted. We're prisoners. Prisoners. Because of the corruption that we've let influence and the things of the civil world that has set in on us. But you know, that 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 hope, that hope, that didn't come from this old world. It couldn't come from this world. You know, I I was behind a lady one time. I, it's been a number of years ago. I decided I was going to uh, buy my wife a decent watch. I mean, something that didn't come from Walmart. Uh, and I went to a place that sold jewelry and stuff. And, but I got behind this, this, this lady that was trying on what I believe was diamond rings. She was trying those things on and I was stuck behind her waiting. But I got to watching her. She would put on one of them rings and she would hold it up and she would turn it and she would look at it. And you could just see the joy on her face of happiness. Look at that ring. And then she'd try another one and she'd go through the same thing. But you know that, that, that diamond 
that she was loving or fell in love with, that she was looking at, and that was a product, that come from this old world, that's a product of this earth. And that desire that, that she had for it, that's a product of this earth. But that hope that we have in our hearts, that didn't come from this earth. That didn't come from this old world. You know, we, we use the word miracle all the time. Toss it around pretty loose. NASCAR driver will be going 200 miles an hour and have a wreck and his car will flip over a few times and they'll have to cut him out of it. And if he gets out and he's walking, that's described as a miracle. It's really not. It's engineering and things they've learned from others that have got killed that they've built in those cars. But the hope you have in your heart, if you want to talk about a miracle, that's a miracle. Because you think about what all had to take place for that to be there. You had to have a Lord that come into this world and shed His blood for you. For you personally. And the Holy Spirit come and touched your cold and stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh and a heart of love and a heart that was receptive to the things of God. And then you had a God that knew you before the foundation of this world and wrote your name in a book and entered into a blood covenant with the Lord to redeem His people. Now that had to take place. Now that's just a few of the things for you to have that hope. And that's America. In my book, that's America. Over in the 11th verse of this ninth chapter, we find this language. It says, As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. Turn ye, or turn you, to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. You know, it speaks about a pit. A pit wherein there is no water. That's where we was at one time through Adam. I mean, we may not like the thought of representation. But the fact is, through Adam, you know, I I see people standing around on a street corner sometime and they'll have a sign and uh, they'll say, not my president. Not my president. I don't know how they get all the time to do that, but apparently they have. I wondered if I could get a sign and put Adam, not my daddy, not my kinfolks, if that'd work, I'd, I'd do it. But I rather suspect that it wouldn't make one bit of difference. 
in Adam, we was in a pit. We had no ability, no desire to be anywhere else. We was in that pit and we would have lived out our life in that pit. Except for that blood covenant and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what delivered us out of that pit. They wasn't a ladder long enough for you to climb out of that pit. Some people think a little bit of water sprinkled on you will get you out of that pit. Some people think uh, uh, walking down the aisle shaking the preacher's hand, that'll get you out of that pit. But it took something much more than those things. You know, I've heard of people that they'll say, I can show you the time and place where I was saved by the Lord's grace. My experience, people like that, almost without exception, they're looking at something that they did. Some act, some some ability that they have. They got a, that, that's what they're looking at. That's the reason they can tell you about the time and the place. It's because they knew they know when they did it. If you have a sweet hope deep within the recesses of your being, you may not exactly know the time and the place. You did it, but you know it's there. And you know that you've got it. And you know that you can depend on it when things get uh, going bad. But it says, By the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. You know, there's different covenants that we read about in the scripture. I think. Uh, and you had the covenant of circumcision with Moses. Abraham entered into a covenant in the 15th chapter of Genesis. And the Lord had him uh, slay, I think it was a goat and a ram and a dove and a turtle dove. And, and he uh, laid out the pieces on each one on each side. And that's the way that men and those they made covenants. They would lay the pieces of those animals out and then they would walk between them, both of them would. And that guaranteed the surety or the keeping of that covenant. And it implied that if they did not keep it, then the same fate that happened to those animals should happen to them. But old Abraham, he lays out these pieces. And then he goes to sleep. In deep sleep, the Scripture says. He just goes to sleep. And long uh, that night, there was a uh, smoking furnace and a burning lamp. I may have that wrong. Maybe, yeah, I think that, that may be right. It passed between those, those pieces. The Lord never did tell Abraham, now you get up and you do your part. He just slept on. 
I read one time that that was what is called a unilateral covenant. And I didn't really know what that was. But I'll put it in my words. It's a, it's a one-sided covenant. A unilateral covenant is one that you have two parties. But the performance and the fulfillment of that covenant is totally, wholly dependent on one of those parties. <coughs> to one party, it is unconditional. To the other party, the surety of that covenant rests on their, their actions. And that's what we have in this blood covenant. It was a unilateral covenant. It wasn't. Lord's people didn't have anything to do with it. If they did, they probably messed it up anyway. It's a one-sided covenant. The full weight of that covenant, that blood covenant, lays on the Lord Jesus Christ and the shedding of His blood. He fulfills that covenant. He is the performance of that covenant. He is a surety of that covenant and none other. In this 12th verse, we find a, a very, to me, gracious invitation. It says, turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. It says to the stronghold. It don't say to turn to a stronghold. It don't say to build a stronghold. People and men have been doing that since man was on this earth. Building their own strongholds. Uh, I believe that's what Cain went to that service that was going to take place. And Abel went looking at the blood of the Lamb. Cain went carrying the works of his hands, whatever that was. That was his stronghold. That was the thing that he was looking to. Nimrod built that Tower of Babel. That didn't have a very good ending. That was his stronghold. People have all kinds of strongholds in this world besides the one that they should be looking at. He says, turn you to the stronghold. A gracious invitation. Now we can make that in order to keep up with the world. We can say that that is a general invitation if you want to. It is. If you're a prisoner of hope. It's to you. If you're a prisoner of hope, it's just like over in the 11th chapter, uh, oh, I believe Matthew, I forgot now. Uh, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Uh, you can call that a general invitation if you want to. But it's to those that are laboring and are heavy laden and are burdened with this life and sin. Then you come unto me, and I'll give you rest. 
Now these prisoners of hope, same thing. You have a gracious invitation to come to that stronghold. Now I read to you, or didn't read to you, I quoted Scripture in the beginning of this chapter about that city of Tyrus. It says that Tyrus has built herself a stronghold. And she was a rich, wealthy city. Silver as piles of dust. Gold as the mire of the street. No doubt those people that live within that, that great fort supposedly had 100-foot walls and was built on an island and, and was considered to be... You wouldn't, wouldn't anybody ever be able to conquer it to destroy it. And no doubt they laid down every night and went to sleep, confident in that stronghold that had been built with the riches and wealth of this old world. But it didn't, it didn't hold it. Alexander the Great came along and in seven months, and that's an interesting battle if you want to read all the details, which I don't aim to, but how he, he was considered a probably the greatest, well he was the greatest military leader of his time, how he conquered that city. But their stronghold that was built on the things of this world, it didn't last. It fell in. It was corrupted. But we have a stronghold that will stay with us. We have a stronghold that is not built on the gold and the silver and the riches and the wealth of this old world that we live in. We have a stronghold that we can turn to. He tells us about that stronghold in this ninth chapter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. The King cometh unto ye. That's our stronghold. That's something that we have to look to in times of trouble and trial. When you're laying awake of night and whatever kind of trouble or it's family trouble or it's church trouble or whatever it is, you've got a stronghold. You've got one to look to that came into this world and shed His blood for you, you personally. He says, I will render double unto thee. Now you can probably take that about however you want to. I've tried to read what the commentaries say and they say different things, quite frankly. He says, I'll render double unto thee. You prisoners of hope, I'll render double unto you. To me, what He renders in this life, in this world, is grace, 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 and more grace. What He renders in the life to come is glory, glory, and more glory. He says, I'll render double to you. Thank you all for putting up with me. I know you miss your pastor. Uh, it's, been, it's been good to be here in some ways. Come ahead, brother. Thank you, Whatever you want to. How are you on?